Morning, everybody. How are you? Good? Good? All right. It's good to be with you guys. We're, uh, we've got a lot to cover today, so we're going we're gonna to jump right in. We're going to cover the end of 56, well, you see it here, all the way through 57, all right? And, uh, and because we're covering a big chunk of text, we're going we're gonna to try to move through it fairly quickly so we're done by three. And then, uh, <laughs> that's not, actually, I, I kid you not, I, the first time I ran through this, I had two hours of content, so we cut it in half. So we're down to about an hour. But for reals, we're going to cover all, of 56, or all 57, the last bit of 56. And uh, um, by way of introduction, I just want to catch us up to where we were last week, and then we'll dive right into this week. So um, last week we talked about the rest of 56, 1 through 8. And the point of 56, 1 through 8 was that the Lord had promised salvation for the righteous, and that that was going to include people who were foreigners, outcasts, right, the eunuch. And the point of that was, as Eric expanded on it, or expounded on I should say, is that the righteous one, namely Christ, which takes us back to the servant song. The righteous one can make people righteous so that they can receive the salvation that God offers. Okay? That was last week. So there was a connection between the righteous one, the salvation that God was offering, and us being given that righteousness. Now, an outline of what's coming for today is pretty straightforward, okay? <clears throat> this is what's coming today, and this is my catchy introduction. Everyone in Israel is wicked. There is no peace for the wicked, but God is going to act so that people who are wicked are healed and given peace, Okay? So something happens between line two and line three that we're going to find out about. That's my introduction. What happens between line two and line three such that people who were wicked have no peace get peace, okay? Is that, is that fair? All right, that's where we're headed as we go through this whole passage. So we'll read 56, 9 through 12, and uh, we'll take our first little chunk here. All you beasts of the field come to devour. All you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind. They're all without knowledge. They're all silent dogs. They cannot bark. Dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. The dogs have a mighty appetite. They never have enough. But they are shepherds who have no understanding. They have all turned to their own way, each to his own game, one and all. Come, they say, let me get wine. Let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. Okay? So <clears throat> Isaiah is actually issuing a summons here. In 56.9, to the beasts of the field. And the beasts of the field in 56.9 is a reference to Israel's enemies. Jeremiah uses the same language in Jeremiah 12, all right? So basically, he's saying, come and feast on God's people, Israel. Come and feast on them. And we should immediately ask, why, why would that be the case, right? Like, why would he say that you can come and feast on God's people? Shouldn't they have people watching over them? Shouldn't they have shepherds and watchmen, right? And the answer is, yeah, they do, but they're all blind, right? Verse 10, the watchmen are blind and have no knowledge. And their shepherds, verse 11, are shepherds with no understanding, okay? So Israel's leaders are worthless. They're blind, they're clueless, okay? They're self-seeking, they go after their own gain, one for all. So they're of no good, okay? So Israel's leaders, who should have been righteous, are not righteous, and not only are they not righteous, they're all pursuing their own ends, okay? And because of that, God's people are left exposed to danger, and everybody's going to be devoured, okay? Good news so far? And interestingly... It's a bit of an irony in the text. In verse 9, the Lord is saying that there's going to be a feast, right? Come and devour. And then in verse 12, the worthless leaders say, let's go get some wine. Let's go get some booze and have a good time. We're going to throw a party tomorrow. Tomorrow's going to be awesome. It's going to be a great time for us, right? And there is going to be a party tomorrow. There is going to be a feast. But they're so clueless and so wicked that they don't understand they're not going to be doing the feasting in this feast they're going to throw. They're going to be the object of the feast, okay? But they just don't get it because they're wicked and they're blind and they have no understanding. So that's the setup for where we're going with the rest of this text. It's intentionally supposed to be a bit uh, depressing. Now, for 
if you're taking notes, start a homework column, okay, on the right side of your page, because I'm going to give you some assigned additional reading. We don't have time to cover everything I wanted to cover, but there's additional passages, other places in the text, or in the Old Testament, that support our text today. So if you're going to go home and read about this more later, put in your homework column on the right side, Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10. That's your additional reading assignment for the failure of Israel's leaders, okay? It will just give you a fuller picture of what was happening or not happening with Israel's shepherds, all right? So Ezekiel 34, 1 through 10, additional reading. And then before we go on to 57, 1 and 2, just by way of personal application here for a minute, um, th this passage is, a little bit we read, is oriented toward Israel's failed leaders, okay? Their prophets and their priests. Um, but there is, I think, a word of caution here for myself, I was thinking of Eric and Jimmy in this as well. Peter, in 1 Peter 5, um, uses similar language for elders of a local church, okay? So as I was reading this and just sort of chewing on the fact that Israel's leaders had failed so miserably and led God's people into destruction, um, that's a sober thing to think about as a leader in a church, okay? So as you're praying for Eric and Jimmy and I, and we would ask that you do that a lot, um, pray that we would not be blind or without knowledge, that we would not be into this for our own gain, Right? Um, that we would not be self-serving in our responsibility to you guys, okay? Because you can see very clearly here when that becomes what a spiritual leader is about, um, it's, uh, it's very bad news for God's people, okay? So that weighed heavy on me. And as you guys pray for us, I would just pray that you would pray that this is not ever characteristic of your leaders, okay? And we need that prayer from you. All right, verses one and two of 57. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity he enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. So what's happening here in verse 1, which is a parallel statement, righteous man perishes, no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. Okay, those are synonymous statements there. The, the worthless leaders of 56 are not even noticing uh, that there's these righteous ones who are perishing, and the righteous ones are perishing and being taken away from calamity, right? There's destruction coming, and they're actually being preserved um, from that. So um, we're not going to get all we're going to do right now in these two verses is hang on to this idea that there's a connection between righteousness and peace, okay? That's all we're doing at this point. There's a connection between righteousness and peace, and the righteous person here in verses 1 and 2 experiences something different from the wicked person that we're about to learn more of and the wicked leaders, okay? So we're going to see that there's a different experience and a different outcome for a righteous person, and it's connected to peace, but we're not going to see any more of this until we get all the way over to verse 13. So just hold that in the back of your mind the connection between righteousness and peace, and the different outcome for the righteous than for the wicked. Okay? You with me? Just keep that thought there. We're going to see more about that in a minute. So we're going to go on to verse 3, and verse 3 is going to take us all the way through 13a. But before we read that, to sort of get ourselves in the right mental space, um, we're going to read a long list of wickedness that Israel was doing. Okay? It's just going to be layer upon layer of you did this, you did this, you did this, you did this, right? And we're tempted when we read stuff like this um, partly because our, our culture would tell us um, this, we're tempted to look at this and say we are different from these people, categorically, right? That was then, this is now. We have somehow evolved or progressed as a humanity beyond the things that they did in this passage. So whatever is being said about them here sort of kind of applies to us, but not really because we're different, okay? And I want us to think uh, not that way as we read this, okay? They had their own particular manifestations of their sinfulness in their given particular cultural context, but the root issue in their hearts that caused them to do these things is the same root issues we have in our hearts. Okay? We have the same human nature. Our nature has not changed. We just have different ways of expressing our wickedness. They expressed it this way, but we have all kinds of ways that we do the same thing. Does that make sense? So read this not thinking that was them. I'm somehow above that. Read this thinking I'm like this 
what does this have to say about my sinful nature, okay? And then I think this will mean more to us as we do that. So, like I say, it's going to feel like we're just putting on layer upon layer of bad news, and that is the point, and it should weigh heavily on you such that you start to feel weighed down by the time we get to the section that we're going to conclude with, okay? It should feel heavy and gloomy. So verse 3 <coughs> says, But you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are you not the children of transgression, the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks and under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the clefts of the rocks? All right, so it's intentionally sharp and biting language, okay? God is addressing his hearers, and he calls them sons of the sorceress and offspring of the adulterer or loose woman, right? He wants to be called that, which is a reference to prostitution, okay? So he's saying the people of Israel were steeped in, conceived in, characterized by sorcery and prostitution, all right? And the sorcery that's here in reference is to acts of sorcery, like they were doing sorcery, you know, sourceful things, if that's a word, right? And that's forbidden. The reason it's a problem is it's forbidden in Leviticus 19, forbidden in Deuteronomy 18 and some other places, okay? And yet Israel did do this. So under Saul, Ahaz, Hezekiah, I'm sorry, Zedekiah and Manasseh, there's a handful of kings that practice sorcery to one degree or another, explicitly against God's word. And he says, he says you guys are characterized by this, right? And that's not a good word for Israel. And it's particularly bad because if you look back at chapter 47, which is just a few pages before this, the Lord had actually issued an indictment against Babylon for being involved in sorcery. So when he says to Israel, you're sons of the sorceress, he's calling to their attention that they actually look a lot like Babylon, and that's a very bad thing for God's people to be characterized by. That's like telling one of us, like, you guys remind me of a North Korea, Kim Jong-un and his cronies in North Korea. It's like, ooh, I don't like that, okay? So comparing Israel to Babylon is bad news for Israel, all right? And the adulterer and the loose woman, we're going to get into this a little bit more here, is references to, to prostitution, okay? And in verse 4, he issues them the summons, right, in verse 3. And then in verse 4, he asks them a question. He poses it to them, right? And he says, whom are you mocking? And against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue, right? And, and you can actually, this word mocking, kind of be rendered a couple different ways. Mocking in the sense that they're mocking God by what they're doing, as we're going to see here in a moment, right? They're sticking it in his face a little bit. But also the idea of mocking could actually carry in the Hebrew the idea of delight. He's saying you are delighting in something, and who are you delighting in? Well, we're about to find out they actually delight in their idols, okay? So they mock the Lord, they're delighting in their idols, okay? Which is why he calls them children of transgression and offspring of deceit. So he is just calling them a lot of names, so to speak, and telling them what they look like and what they're characterized by. Deceit, transgression, sorcery, adultery, prostitution, right? It's very bad, okay? It's supposed to sound bad. And in verse five, it says, you who burn with lust among the oaks under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys and under the clefts of the rocks, those are specific references, if you're familiar with your Old Testament, to the cultic practices that they engaged in to the goddess Asherah, right? The fertility goddess. So when it says you burn with lust among the oaks, this is actually a specific reference to flagrant public sexual rituals that were designed to appease the fertility goddess so that their land would have fertility, okay? So there's, there are very specific practices in mind when he says burn with lust among the oaks. And you can read more about that in 1 Kings 14, 23. And 2 Kings 16, 4, right? You can kind of see what it is that they were engaging in here. But it is, it is public, flagrant sexual immorality done in worship of, an, of a deity, right? A goddess. And it says they slaughtered their children in the valleys and under the clefts of the rocks. And that is a reference to child sacrifice and to that's to the god Molech, right? If you've heard of this. That's expressly forbidden in Leviticus 18 and 20. 
Okay? So the Lord is just giving them these lists of indictments. You did this, you shouldn't have done it. You did this, you know you shouldn't have done that. So you're engaging in cultic sexual practices, and you're killing your children, right, to the god Molech. So then you get to verse 6. Again, another layer of just bad news and indictment. Among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? Okay. So the wicked person here in mind, not only has he done cultic sexual practices, not only is he sacrificing his children or their children, he's now offering grain offerings and drink offerings to the smooth stones of the valley, which is reference in some way to an idol, whether it's an image of an idol carved out of stone, could also be rendered the dead of the valley. But the point is, they're offering grain offerings and drink offerings to an idol out in the valley. Okay? Who's supposed to receive grain offerings and drink offerings from the people of God? Well, God himself, right? We know that crystal clear. Okay? There should be no one else from the whole book of Leviticus and the first half of the Ten Commandments. Nobody else receives grain offerings and drink offerings from God's people, much less idols out in the valley. Okay? And so then what he does is he asks a little question here at the end of verse 6 sort of interjects a rhetorical question. And it can be read, it has kind of a double meaning here. Shall I relent for these things? Meaning, should I not be angry at this? Right? Should I not be angry that you have done all of these flagrant, wicked things in front of me and completely ignored me and offered idols their sacrifices that were supposed to be offered to me? Should I not be angry? Answer, yes. Okay, that, that's just. That's right. But also, there's a little bit of a second idea here. Should I relent, which is the word in the ESV, for these things. So are the things that they're doing, they make God angry, and should he, should he be appeased by these things, right? Should he be appeased by the fact that they're offering grain on drink offerings to the wrong deities? And the answer is no, okay? And there's a whole sermon we could make out of that, which I was tempted to, but won't. All of their religious activity, and we're going to see there's more and more of it, they're very religious, okay? They're very sincere in what they're doing. They're doing a lot of things, and they're doing them with vigor, as we'll see here in a minute, okay? but they're oriented in the wrong direction, okay? So it does matter that when you do religious things, as we saw in chapter 58 a couple weeks ago before Passion Week, they were fasting, seemed really good at face value, and the Lord said it was worthless, right? There's a lesson here that all of the religious activity that they were doing, fasting, offering sacrifices, whatever, if it's oriented toward the wrong being, or if it's done out of alignment with what the Lord says should be done in worship of him, it's, it's of no value. And we'll see that exactly said here in a couple minutes. Does that make sense? Really sincere religious activity doesn't count, if you want to use that kind of word, if it's done against what the Lord has said should be done. Does that make sense? And our pluralistic society, the world we live in, would tell you that that's totally not true, right? It doesn't matter what people do, so long as they're sincere about it, and they're pursuing a higher being, it's fine, it's all the same. It's not all the same, okay? It's not all the same, all right? Okay, another layer of wrongdoing and taint. Here we go. On a high and lofty mountain, you have set your bed. You went up there to offer sacrifices, and behind the door and the doorpost, you have set up your memorial. For deserting me, you have uncovered your bed. You have gone up to it, you have made it wide, and you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed, and you have looked on nakedness. Okay? So in verse 7, they set their bed, which is a sexual reference. Okay? They set their bed on a high place. And again, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, the high places are places where they went and set up places of pagan idolatrous worship. Not the temple, okay? So they went and set up these places of worship in the high places, and they offered sacrifices up there, okay? And again, the bed reference is a sexual reference to their prostitution, all right? And in verse 8, it says they have set up a memorial behind the door and the doorpost, all right? 
And I think, this could be a symbol as in like some sort of a pagan symbol of some sort, possibly sexual in nature, right? We keep coming back to this idea of sexuality. It was sort of, ancient Near Eastern cultic worship was replete with it, right? But I actually think what's in mind here, this idea of the memorial being behind the door. So if you think back into Deuteronomy 6, 9, Israel was supposed to have on their doorpost the word of the Lord where they could see it, right? They're supposed to have something on their doorpost so they could see the word of the Lord and be reminded what it meant to follow him, okay? I think what he's saying here is that you put that behind the door, right? You took what you knew to be true about how you should worship me and what you should do, and you put it out of sight and out of mind, and instead you've done all this other stuff, okay? I think, they, I think they're ignoring what the Lord had told them to do, and they didn't have to think about it by putting it out of sight and out of mind, okay? And when he says here in 8 that they have made a covenant for themselves with them, this is deliberate covenant language because God had made a covenant with his people, right? So what happens when they engage in worship of pagan deities through all of these cultic practices, right? They're actually breaking their covenant with God and essentially trying to make another one, okay? So there's a literal prostitution happening here, a literal adultery where they're actually engaged in pagan cultic sexual practices, but there's also even more fundamentally a spiritual adultery that's happening here, right? And the fact that they loved it, right? They loved their bed, this bed of prostitution that they had made, right? Um, is that it, it's supposed to be ugly language, right? It makes us a little uncomfortable, right? In fact, I was trying to figure out how to preach this with a mixed audience, but um, the point is they cheated on God and they liked it, okay? They cheated on him and they liked it, all right? So then in verse nine, more problems. You feel a sense of like, oh my word, this is bad, okay? It's very bad, should feel bad. <clears throat> verse nine, you journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, so you were not faint, okay? What happens here is it actually transitions from spiritual unfaithfulness to political unfaithfulness. So back in Isaiah 7, Isaiah had talked about how they were making political treaties with foreign nations that they weren't supposed to do. And you see this happen again in 1 Kings 16 and in 2 Chronicles 28, right? Israel was supposed to rely on the Lord for their protection, and instead of trusting him, they went out and made, they cut deals and compromised with these foreign nations, which they were not supposed to do. And the Lord is saying, you went and did that. So you journeyed to the king with oil, you sent your envoys far off, you made political alliances that dishonored the Lord, okay? And you did that in pursuit of security. If you read those accounts, they were trying to preserve themselves, right? So they went and made these illicit political alliances and again, broke the covenant that they had with the Lord because he was to be their protector. And they said, nah, we won't take you at your word on that. We feel like we need to take this into our own hands and we'll go cut some deals with Babylon. We'll cut some deals with Egypt, all right? And eventually, in verse 10, they get tired of this, okay? It actually wears them out to go and cut deals with foreign alliances, make foreign alliances and cut deals with foreign nations. And they realize, okay, this is getting really hard, but what do they do? They did not say it's hopeless. They didn't recognize the hopelessness of what they were doing. They actually doubled down on it. They found new life for their strength so they weren't faint, okay? So remember when I said a minute ago, we're like these people, okay? They, <laughs> they realized that what they were trying to do to give themselves security and peace wasn't working, and instead of recognizing that and repenting of that, they literally doubled down on it, pushed deeper into it, and kept going, okay? Is that not something that you can relate to in your own heart, okay? You're pursuing something, you realize it's sin, you realize it's wrecking you and it's not working, and instead of waking up and stopping it, you're like, no, let's do a little bit more. And you just push deeper into that thing in this insane hope that it's gonna actually satisfy you, right? So we get what they're doing here. We understand the impulse to just push on and not give up on something that you know isn't working, okay? 
They did it with political alliances, but we do it with other stuff too, right? So then, the Lord asks another question, okay? He keeps telling them, you're doing these things? Well, what does it mean, right? So in verse 11, he says, okay, you did all this stuff. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? I will declare your righteousness in your deeds and they will not profit you, okay? So just like he did in verse four, he poses another question to them to get them to think, okay, what, what are we doing here? He says, who did you fear? And the fear here is both a reverence whom did you revere? Okay, well, that was their idols. So they revered their idols instead of him. And whom were you afraid of? That would be their political enemies. So they went and cut deals. So the fear that they had was oriented toward their idols and their enemies. But who should they have been fearing, right? Should fear the Lord, okay? Deuteronomy 6, Deuteronomy 8, Deuteronomy 10, Deuteronomy 13, Proverbs 9, Proverbs 10, etc., etc. right? Israel should have feared the Lord, but they exchanged that for fearing idols and fearing other nations. Okay? And they didn't lay it to heart. They didn't recognize this. They didn't think on this. And he says, have I not held my peace even for a long time? Okay? He held his peace. He was patient, so to speak. Did not act against them for a long time. And instead of recognizing him as patient, what did they do? They feared other things instead. Right? So they saw that he was patient with them. Didn't perceive it as patient. Perceived it as inactivity or silence or whatever they did. And they just went off and continued pursuing these other things. And that's another relatable human impulse. Okay, the Lord is slow, so to speak. For Second Peter 3 talks about this. There's people who say the Lord is slow. He doesn't act fast enough for us. He hasn't come back yet. Maybe he's not coming at all. And so when we see that the Lord is acting slow in our terms, we go off and we find comfort or we go off and pursue things outside of the Lord because we can't just wait on it. Okay, does that make sense? Yet another relatable thing that they were doing. Okay, he was patient with them, but instead of fearing him, they went and feared other things in the meantime. All right? So, Verse 12, very critical for the whole point that he's been making here. Verse 12 sort of summarizes the point of verses 3 through 11. The Lord says, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you, okay? This is a very unsettling verse because all of the stuff that they had been doing, sincerely, working very hard at, right? Remember, in verse 10 and 9, this was hard work, okay? They were weary by this work, and yet they continued to push into it and do it. All of this hard work that they had done, all of this idolatrous worship, okay, it accrued to them a righteousness in their minds. And what did the Lord say about it? He said, I'll evaluate it. I'll declare it. I'll expose it. And the answer is, it's worthless, okay? It's worthless. Everything you were doing is of no good to you, all right? It's of no good to you. And that's a big deal. And that's something we should take away from that right away is <clears throat> there is a judge who determines the value of righteousness as we see it, right? And that is not us. I don't determine if my righteous deeds are righteous or not. You don't determine if your righteous deeds are righteous or not. The Lord determines, exposes, declares, right, if things are righteous or not, okay? So like the Babylonians, which is exactly what he said of Babylon in verse 41, their works were of no good, okay? Their works were of no good. So verse 12 sort of summarizes 1 through 11. You did all of these things. They were all wicked things that you thought were good, but I'm here telling you they weren't good and you have no righteousness to show for it, okay? No righteousness to show for it. So then in verse 13, he says, a little bit of divine sarcasm. He says, okay, you have no righteousness of your own, but maybe you could turn to your idols and they will deliver you, right? You guys aren't righteous, you're wicked, but your idols, hey, maybe they can help you out. And then what did he say right after that in verse 13? The wind will carry them off in a breath 
will take them away. Okay? So they don't have any righteousness of their own. They don't have any gods that can deliver them. Their gods are so incompetent and so vacuous, so useless, worthless, they're just a and they're gone. Okay? So they have accrued to themselves nothing of value, either by their own deeds or by the idols that they've been attempting to serve. Right? And I think when the Lord is attacking their idols here, he's saying something yet again that he said numerous times throughout Isaiah, like in 45, 5 through 6. I am the Lord and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west, so from the east to the west, everywhere, that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. Okay? So he attacks their idols and says, your righteousness, no good. Your idols, no good. There's one God. It's me. I've assessed your righteousness, and I have found it completely lacking. Okay? This is a very bad picture that is being painted. And back in your homework column for a minute, go to 1 Kings 18, 20 through, tw- well, 18, 20 through 40. All right? That's the uh, story of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Right? If you want a classic, illustrative story about the futility of the idols that they were serving, read about Elijah and the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings 18. All right? And if you want to read another example of what I was talking about with these political alliances that they were making, go read in 2 Chronicles 28. Read the whole chapter. Okay? And part of the reason why I wanted to read those today and why I'm assigning them to you as homework, which I'll ask about on Wednesday, um, is when you read the prophets, especially because we're not, most of us, right? Most of us are not, Linda might be an exception. Most of us don't think poetically, right? Like, unless we're English majors or something. We read poetry and it doesn't just immediately stick in our minds. Like we don't get it necessarily. So sometimes we read poetry, we sort of get lost in like, who's he talking about and what's going on and all that stuff. So when you read the narrative sections, like Kings and Chronicles, with the poetry, then the references he makes to the practices that they were doing and the things that were going on make more sense because you sort of see the narrative side of it. Does that make sense? Like you understand what he's talking about when he makes these references because you're reading about it in Kings and Chronicles, particularly Kings and Chronicles, all right? So that's why I want you to read those passages is because it helps you round out what Isaiah is saying in the poetic books as you read the narrative books alongside of them, all right? A, a simple analogy to this would be, I've always liked country music, okay? Particularly the old stuff when it was still good. Um, but when I moved to the South, moved down to Tennessee, uh, I understand old country songs a little better. I appreciate them more because I actually understand the references to the places. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, there are no red dirt roads in Colorado, okay? But there are in Tennessee, right? There's a lot more moonshine here than there was in Colorado. So, <laughs> point being, when you live somewhere and you see the geography and you meet the people, you understand the point of what's being said better. So when you go see the geography and you meet the people in the narratives, you understand the point better of what's being said in the poetic. Okay? Got it? That's just a biblical principle to take with us. You can apply it to these passages here with those verses this week. Okay? But in general, it's a good principle to keep in mind. All right. Let's summarize to where we are right now. Okay? Israel as a nation and as individuals has proven utterly wicked, breaking the covenant with God repeatedly. Their righteousness is worthless and of no profit, and their idols are unable to save or deliver them. Okay? We got that so far? That's the picture we have painted. So then, things change in 13b. Okay? Things change in 13b. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy, I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of a contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. 
for the spirit would grow faint before me and the breath of life that I made. Because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. Okay, that takes us all the way through 19. <clears throat> so, <laughs> Eric can attest to this. I talked to him about this twice this week because I was trying to sort through this part of the passage. As I was going through these verses here, I, I found myself getting a little hung up um, and missing the forest for the bark on the trees. Okay, so what I want to do here in this section, 13b through 19, is I want to sort of just zoom back a little bit, look at it as a whole section, and I want to connect it to what we already know from a different part of Isaiah, and I want to connect it to something that Paul says in Ephesians, okay, that I think will support the conclusion I'm making about this particular section, all right? So we're going to look at this section as a whole, connect it to somewhere else in Isaiah, and then we're going to connect it to something that Paul says in the New Testament, try to figure out what's going on here with this idea of people getting peace and being struck, right, and this contrite spirit and all that. What's going on here, okay? So just to recap these verses, and then I'll give you my argument for what I think is happening. In verse 15, God says he'll dwell with, the, dwell with and revive the lowly and the contrite. So should someone prove to be lowly and contrite, he would experience God's presence and healing. God says he will not be angry forever with sin, or else the sinner would perish, verse 16. God says that he did strike the sinner for his sin, verse 17. God says that he will heal and comfort the sinner and those who mourn for him in verse 18. And God offers peace and healing to people far and near in verse 19. All right? So I'm going to play my cards right away and tell you that I think what's going on here is that this is a reference to the work of the servant in chapter 53. Okay? I think he's calling to mind what he just said about the work of the servant a few chapters before. All right? And as we read a passage like this that I found a little bit more complex, we ought to read the complex passages in light of the clear passages, particularly the clear passages that come right before it in the same book, okay? Does that make sense? So when we're trying to figure out what something says, let's pull back a little bit and say, okay, what has Isaiah built up in his theology so far that would help us understand what's being said here? And everything that's being said here harkens back to, I believe, chapter 53, okay? What we know from chapter 53, which we spent about six weeks on, latter part of 52 and all of 53, the servant song, if you will, we know from that there is one who is righteous and knows no sin, who was struck by God in the place of the sinner as a sacrifice, who was then returned to life and is highly exalted and makes many to be accounted righteous. Do you remember that from 53? Okay? So we remember that from 53. All right? And part of the reason that I want to connect this to 53 is because there's numerous thematic and textual language connections between 53 and 57. Okay? And I'm just going to give these to you. All right? In 53, I'm sorry, in 13b, he says, He who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and inherit my holy mountain. That's a connection to 56.7, which was last week's passage, just a few verses before this. Right? And God is promising salvation for those who are righteous. But as we discussed last week, no one is righteous. Remember, we learned that today, 57.12, except for the servant. The servant was righteous. So the salvation that's offered in 56 comes to us by one who is righteous. Right? That's connected to 13b. In verse 15, we see language here about God being high and lifted up. And we see someone who is contrite and lowly in spirit. Who is contrite and lowly and who is high and lifted up? Thinking back to 53, that's language used of the servant. Okay? So who else but the servant had the proper disposition before God of being humble and lowly, right? Who was he that we, we didn't look on? I mean, he wasn't anything special, right? He was like a sheep before its shears. Okay? Humble and lowly. Right? Contrite. 
And then in verse 16, God says he won't be angry forever, or else the spirit, aka the breath of life, and those he is angry against would faint. So if God was in contention with sinful humanity forever, poured out the full extent of his wrath on sinful humanity, no one would be left, everyone would perish, okay? But was there one who was struck by God and yet didn't perish forever? There was, right? Does this also remind us of 53? There was one who was struck and yet was able to see his offspring. His days were extended, right? Do you follow what I'm saying so far? I'm making just connections here because, again, I think that Isaiah is hearkening us back to 53 with what he's saying. So in verses 17 through 19, there is one who was struck by the Lord, okay? But the one who was struck is then healed and his mourners with him, all right? And I think the striking healing is an embedded reference to the resurrection, but I'm going to leave it at that, okay? So then the one who was struck and those who are mourning it are comforted and praise the Lord with their lips, and then the one who is healed gets peace. So I'm going to summarize here everything I just tried to say with this, okay? So try to get this right here. The Lord says here that he will strike sinners, yet he only strikes one individual, and there are others who see his striking and are mourning, but then all of them are comforted because of what happened to the one, okay? The Lord says he will strike sinners, yet he only strikes one individual here, and there are others who see his striking, and then all of them are comforted because of what happened to the one, okay? You with me on that? All right? So again, everything about this connects with what happens in 53. And, and <clears throat> well, yeah. The suffering servant brought healing and peace. I'm going to read from 53 now, verses 5 and 6, okay? So Isaiah 53, 5 through 6. But he, the servant, was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we were healed. Peace and healing, connected in the work of the servant. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. Interesting, just like the Israel's leaders. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Okay? So the work of the servant is connected in 53, 5, and 6 with peace and healing. And remember from our sermons on 53, that was then given to us, those who he makes righteous. Okay? 53, 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So the stricken or smitten by God in 53.4 is the same word in 57.17, okay? So God is striking someone in 57 for sin. Again, it ends up being only one individual, right? And those blows are absorbed by the one we see in 53, which was the servant, okay? So the blows of God's hand over anger for sin are absorbed by the servant, the Messiah. So that way we can say that by his wounds, we are healed. And then therefore we are given the peace that only the righteous can have because he makes many to be accounted righteous, okay? And I would encourage you, go back and listen to some of those last few sermons on 53 to help all this make sense, okay? Because we talked a lot about the work of the servant. What is he actually accomplishing, okay? He's taking iniquities from the people and he's making them righteous. And as we saw a snippet of in 57, one and two, that's how somebody gets peace, is you're made righteous, is you're righteous, right? Well, how do we get righteous? By the work of the servant, okay? Second Corinthians 5.21, for our sake, he, God, made him, Christ, to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Okay? All right. So, that's me building an argument right there. The way I think this flows, to sort of step back again and just catch the big point here, only one who is righteous can have peace. None of us are righteous. We spent about half an hour talking about how wicked they all were. Therefore, none of us can have peace. But, the servant was righteous. Therefore, the servant has peace. We can have righteousness and peace if the servant gives them to us. 
Okay? You with me on that? All right. And <clears throat> a quick other, well, yeah, real quick here. So um, what part of what hung me up on this as I was studying through this was, you know, 50, chapter 53 is like three pages before 57, okay? But when we read chapter 53 and studied through it as a church, it was what, a month and a half or two months ago? Something like that, okay? So as we study through a book and we go verse by verse and chapter by chapter, which is good, we should do that, sometimes we have to remind ourselves when we get to chapter 57 two months later that what was written and said in 53, if you were just reading Isaiah, would have been like three minutes before. Does that make sense? Where we would have read 53 and 54 and 55 and a couple minutes later we would have read 57. But sometimes when we have a chronological gap between the chapters that we're studying, we have to remember that the chronological gap does not translate to a textual gap or a connections gap in the author's mind as he was writing it. Does that make sense? So sometimes it's good as we study through stuff like this to read big chunks of it at a time to keep yourself in context with the whole of what is being said. All right? We don't want to miss the forest for the trees. All right. <clears throat> now, another big reason why I think this passage in 57 here is describing the work of the servant is because, actually this is my biggest reason why, Ephesians 2, 13 through 17, Paul actually takes what's said here about the righteousness and peace that's being offered and he applies it to Christ and what he has done for us, okay? So my silver bullet argument for this is that Paul thinks that Isaiah 57 and the peace that's being offered, okay, is through Christ, all right? So I'm gonna read for you Ephesians 2, 13 through 17, okay? And listen to what Paul, listen to how Paul quotes and references Isaiah 57 and what he says it means. So Ephesians 2, 13 through 17. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances, that he might create in himself one new man in place of the two, so making peace and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who are far off and peace to those who were near. Okay, do you hear Isaiah 57 there in Ephesians 2? Okay. So what I think Paul is saying, okay, is that the peace that's connected to the righteousness in Isaiah 57 comes through Christ, who is our source of righteousness and himself is our peace. He gives us peace. And we're talking about a, hor we're talking about a vertical peace, peace with God. That's why he says we were reconciled to God. And he's talking about a horizontal peace, a peace with one another, because the context of Ephesians 2 is Jews and Gentiles reconciled into one new humanity. Okay? And there's also, I think, an internal peace as well. Okay? So the, uh, the peace being offered to us through Christ in Ephesians 2 is horizontal, vertical, and internal. And it comes because of the work of Christ doing it on our behalf and giving it to us. Okay? You with me on that? Yes? No? Bailey's with me. Thank you. Bailey's got it. All right. Now, <clears throat> one other thing I want to pull out of this here. And by the way, just by the way, I know this is a heavy sermon. I'm jumping all over, making all kinds of connections. I feel like I'm lecturing in a classroom, okay? Eric asked me this before we started. That's your, your teaching. What's, where's the preaching part of this, okay? Where's the part that speaks to the heart, not just to the head? Um, and then my answer to that would be, this is really good news, okay? This is really good news. If we're like these people who are really wicked and have no righteousness of our own and therefore no hope of peace, it's very, very good news that there is one who is righteous and does have peace and gives it to you, okay? That means you can actually have peace. 
right? It means you're, you know, when we said that first part there, everyone's wicked, there's no peace for the wicked. If it wasn't for the servant, if it wasn't for Christ giving us his peace and giving us his righteousness, that would be the end of the sermon. We're all wicked, none of us are ever going to have any peace. Go home, okay? But it's not the end of the sermon. The point is, there is a peace available to us, peace with God, peace with one another, through the servant, and that is fantastic news because that news is all the better for having seen how dark the situation was with all that long list of problems. Does that make sense? As bad as things were, despite that, those wicked people doing all of those things, because of the one who was struck, they can be healed, and God can give them peace. That's crazy, okay? That's the part that I want to hit us in our hearts. There is a peace available to you. You don't come up with it on your own. It's done for you, given to you by Christ, okay? All right. And, and it's good to remind ourselves as well that um, the Lord is doing all of this, Okay? There's not a part of this that we have to like sort of pitch in on, so to speak, because he even creates the praise on their lips. He's the one doing the leading. He's the one restoring the comfort. He's the one doing the healing. He's the one creating the praise on their lips that they give back to him, okay? This is all the Lord's doing. And I'll read a couple of other New Testament passages. Just, I, want us to, I want it to be cemented in our minds, and I want to lift a burden off of you that says you've got to do this on your own, okay? That the Lord is the one that is working out for you your salvation and the resulting peace, Okay? Romans 5.8, but God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, like these people, flagrantly cheating on God and liking it, while we were like that, Christ died for us. In Ephesians 2, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And Titus 3, 3-7. through seven, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness. They're of no profit, remember? Not because of the works that we did in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration and the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Okay? Because of that, because of God doing the work of saving us, of justifying us, of pouring out his grace on us richly, the peace that he declares here in verse 19 of Isaiah 57, to the far and to the near, right? That sounds a lot like chapter 56. The Jew and the Gentile, those who are close, those who are not close. We would be the not close category, right? For all of those people who were formerly wicked, because of the healing work that the Lord can do, He's extending an offer of peace to those people because he's going to heal them, okay? That is awesome, okay? That is awesome, right? That is awesome. Now, it's actually not how Isaiah concludes, though, okay? Verses 20 and 21 sort of conclude this section. And they say, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. So Isaiah paints this beautiful picture, well, he paints a bad picture, everything's horrible, but 
a peace will be offered to these wicked people by the work of God. And then he concludes, this is the last thing he wants us to know, if you stay wicked, you don't get the peace, okay? The wicked are like the tossing sea. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked, all right? And just like the sea, it's in the nature of the sea to just toss. That's what it does. The waves just slosh back and forth, and they toss up muck, they toss up mire, they generate mud, right? That's the picture that he wants us to have of the wicked, okay? So I think he closes with a warning that we are well advised to heed, okay? We, want, we don't want to be numbered among the wicked. We don't want to be like the wicked here and in the rest of the chapter that have no righteousness and have no peace. So the question is, how does one get the righteousness and the peace and not stay wicked, right? How does one not be numbered among the wicked? And for those of us who know the Lord, the answer is you find it in Christ, right? You trust the work of the servant on your behalf to make you righteous and give you the peace. And then you will have the peace that the Lord is offering here. We know that. So if you're a believer and you have experienced the peace with God and with one another that's offered to you through Christ, then a practical application of that is to be very thankful for it and don't try to drum up your own righteousness. We're so tempted to do that, right? He gave us the righteousness. He gave us the peace. Now it's up to us to somehow maintain it by doing the right things or being very religious or whatever, right? Some of you may have come to church this morning to do a thing, a religious thing, in hopes that that will somehow twist God's arm into giving you a peaceful situation. It's not how it works, okay? He gives you the peace that's horizontal and vertical because he gives you the righteousness. You don't earn the righteousness. You don't give yourself the peace, okay? But if you don't know the Lord, if, you're, if you listen to me talk about this today and you read along with this and you said, I think that I'm in the category of the one that has my own righteousness that I just realized is of no profit to me. If that's you, if that is a conviction that the Lord has laid on your heart where you realize, I thought I had a lot of righteousness and I'm realizing I don't, okay? then my word to you would be call upon the servant who can give you the righteousness and the peace and don't continue, don't double down, right? Don't find new strength for your ways and continue to try to press into and make more of your own righteousness. Call upon the Lord to save you, right? Then he will make you righteous and then he will give you the peace and you will not be numbered with the wicked who will never have it, okay? That's a call to you if you're feeling convicted call upon the Lord. All right? Okay. That's Isaiah 57. It's a good word. It's an encouraging word. It's also a sobering word, right? But I hope it encourages our hearts to know that the peace that God offers is, in fact, available to us through Christ. If you don't get anything else from this morning, just get what Paul said in Ephesians 2. There is a reconciliation with God available to us in Christ, and because of that, he himself is our peace, gives us his peace. Okay? You got that? All right, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll wrap up this morning.